Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You're listening to the first and only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. You can find all of our episodes at PharmacyPodcast.com. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your co-host in 2017, focused on more than your career development, Aaron Albert. More on me over at my website, AaronAlbert.com. Of course, you can always follow us at Pharmacy Podcast on Twitter, or I'm at Aaron L. Albert on Twitter as well. Today, we conclude our mini-series in talking with former DEA head, Mr. Joseph T. Ranazizi. He was kind enough to not only share his career path, multiple decades of tenure during DEA uh, as both a pharmacist as well as an attorney, But today we're going to talk and conclude our three-part mini-series on hot topics in pharmacy law and controlled substances. Today's specific conversation looks at pharmacy robberies, time safes, um, even asking wilder questions such as should hydrocodone and oxycodone even be available in community practice pharmacies? pseudoephedrine, and of course the methamphetamine issues, should DEA itself exist? And last but not least, certainly we wanted to discuss the new presidential administration, the cabinet, and uh, what direction the Trump administration may be headed in, and get Mr. Ranazizi's thoughts on that as well. If you haven't listened to the two previous episodes on hot topics, I would encourage you to go back and give a listen to those. Um, This is that third part of the conversation. As well, there's a separate episode on Mr. Ranazizi's career development because, of course, hot topics in uh, pharmacy practice overall and I, my focus for you is on career development. And certainly DEA is an avenue that a lot of pharmacists don't consider uh, for career development, but certainly with Mr. Ranazizi, we wanted to focus on that. So our deep, sincere gratitude to Mr. Ranazizi for sharing his thoughts with us over the course of this mini series, as well as his own career development. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. As always, please leave us feedback at Pharmacy Podcast on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'm Erin Albert. So we're talking to Joe Ranazizi, formerly of the DEA, uh, about a myriad of topics here beyond, obviously, career development, which is my normal bailiwick. But um, I asked our fellow... This year um, at Myers and Stauffer, Dr. Lauren Steinbach, also a Butler grad, what questions she wanted to ask you. And she came up with the question around pharmacy robberies. There's a lot of pharmacists out there very nervous about working in community practice. Unfortunately, I live in the jurisdiction, I think, with the dubious honor of having number one in the country in terms of pharmacy robberies, I believe, last year. What's your best advice for the pharmacists out there that are really in community practice? They're trying to do their best, um, but, you know, robberies are happening. I, I actually, before I retired, I taught this, this part of the class uh, to pharmacists in the Pharmacy Diversion Awareness Conferences. What we always tell pharmacists is this. The, the people that are, that are robbing pharmacies, it's an act of desperation. They need the medication. So you're going to give them whatever they want. You're not going to fight them. You're not going to challenge them. You're not going to pull out your weapon of choice. In fact, we tell you 
not to do that. Because if you've never been in a gunfight, you've never been in a shooting, you don't understand how quickly it goes bad. So what you're going to do is you're going to give them. It's the same thing we've been telling pharmacists for years. They want, they say, I want all your hydrocodone and oxycodone. You just say, yes, sir. Here it is. You get it out, you put it in a bag or give it however you want, and you get it and you let them go. Let them leave the store. As soon as they clear the store, make sure your parents okay, your patients are okay. Uh, you go lock the door so that they can't get back in, and you get on the phone and you call 911 and say, I've just been robbed. You give them whatever they want. If they get what they want, almost always they'll leave. They'll leave, they're happy, and you're safe. There's a lot of pharmacies now that have time safes as well, so that's um, could be a point of contention. I've never been in agreement with time safes. I've said this very clearly uh, on every briefing I've ever done in Congress and and uh, at the state level. I think time safes are dangerous. And what what good is it if you're protecting you know a few bottles of oxycodone or hydrocodone? but you have a dead pharmacist or a dead employee or a dead patient that, that, you know, it, it just doesn't losing someone over to these drugs. It's, it's a shame. It's a shame. And you don't have to look any farther than that Medford, New York incident where that pharmacist, we never know what happened, what he said, but people lost their lives and the guy got the drugs anyway. So, so what you need to understand is time safes sound like a great idea, but if you ever tried to do something like uh, open a safe or get into a safe when there's a gun to your head, it's not very easy. So I don't agree with time safes. It's not a requirement under federal law, and I think you're really misguided when you start telling pharmacists they have to lock these drugs up. So I, I guess the bigger question is, should should oxycodone, should hydrocodone even be available in outpatient settings? And, and what, what's happening legislatively in a lot of jurisdictions is they're limiting quantity day supply on uh, these drugs for prescriptions, which I think is probably a good thing. Um, but do they even have a place in community pharmacies, in your opinion? Yes, I, I I've never been a prohibitionist. I've never said that this should, these drugs shouldn't be out in the marketplace. I think that there are, there's patients who, who need these drugs. Uh, I think the patient population that's on this drug far exceeds the amount that actually need it, but there are patients that need it. And so I would never, ever say uh, these drugs should just be limited to uh, one type of setting or another. Uh, but I think the states are frustrated, and I think the reason the states are, are, are creating these laws that limit the amount of drug that a patient that a prescriber could send out with a patient is because they're frustrated with the fact that there's too much drug on the street, there's too much drug going out, and and it's not just the states now; it's the the there's medical societies within the states, physicians within the states that are saying that. Prescribers are not necessarily doing their job in, in sending out large quantities of drug. So uh, I, I think that those drugs need to remain 
in the pharmacies, but I also think that the states need to do a better job of policing their physicians and their prescribing habits. What about pseudoephedrine? Because in Indiana, we've had a lot of issues with methamphetamine uh, production. So what, what do you or where do you land on making pseudoephedrine either this third class of drugs, prescription, prescription and or controlled substance? I think that when we worked on the Combat Meth Epidemic Act, uh, I was pushing for at least a C5 scheduling. Uh, we didn't get it, obviously. We got behind the counter, which is kind of like modified C5. Uh, I think that pseudoephedrine is still a problem. We still have a large number of, of clan labs in the United States that are driven by pseudoephedrine. Uh, in some states, we're just not looking for those labs anymore. And so you're not going to, you, you see the lab numbers naturally going down, but it's not because the labs are not there. It's because people are just not investigating those type of cases anymore. And, and so pseudoephedrine continues to be a problem, as does ephedrine. It, we're still seeing them at lab sites. We're still finding labs out there. Uh, I think that Making it a Schedule 5 would have opened the door to a lot of different options that the federal government had, but we have behind the counter. Is it working? Well, it's better than what we had, so I guess it's working, uh, but it's not working as well as Schedule 5 would have worked. Now, if you look at Oregon or Mississippi, they have it at Schedule 3, and they virtually have no labs in the state of Oregon and the state of Mississippi. So uh, you could see that making it a scheduled controlled substance in Schedule 3 works. But, you know, we have what it is. The, the law is what it is. It's a behind-the-counter drug, and we, we live with it. So let me ask you a really out-there question. Um, there's a lot of criticism of DEA kind of holistically on the interwebs uh, in preparing for this uh, interview, you know, one of the questions that's been debated online at Quora and other forums is, should the DEA exist at all? And so I wanted to ask you kind of that question um, to get your thoughts on that. I, I think DEA has, a, has a, a very important place in regulatory enforcement community. Remember, we're a single mission agency. We don't have any authority other than controlled substances. We enforce criminal statutes related to controlled substances, civil statutes related to controlled substances, and administrative uh, requirements and regulatory control over controlled substances. If you didn't have a DEA, uh, it would be the Wild West. You, you need an agency that's going to oversee the Controlled Substances Act and all of its provisions, a specific agency. Now, I know people don't like the, the DEA because they don't agree with the drug laws. If you don't agree with the drug laws, then the only way to change drug laws is to get congressmen and senators into place that will consider a revision. However, most congressmen and senators know that drug laws are important to keep the public safe. 
And while most Americans feel that the drug laws are important, uh, there are few out there, a very vocal few, that continue to go on the internet and bash the DEA. But what are they bashing the DEA for? They're bashing the DEA for doing their job, for making sure the public's safe and making sure that the statute is, is enforced. And so I, I, I generally don't even read those things because it's always the same people saying the same things centered around marijuana. So I, I just, you know, those are my views on that. All right. So I'm going to ask you your favorite question here. You faced several critics and been critical of Congress um, during your tenure at the DEA. So here's your opportunity to discuss if you think the new administration with Mr. Trump at all is heading in the wrong or right direction around drugs and overall uh, enforcement and reform. I think that Mr. Trump is early into his career. He's picked an attorney general and Jeff Sessions that understands why the drug laws are important and why drugs like marijuana should be kept you know, in check through the federal statutes. I think that Mr. Trump is gonna be on a learning curve because he didn't come from Congress and he doesn't have this background in federal drug law and he doesn't really have a background in what's harming the public yet. He will learn and he's got a good cadre of advisors especially at the department and at HHS, who will lead him to where he needs to go when it comes to federal drug laws and what drugs need to be addressed and how quickly they need to be addressed. But I think the bigger problem is Congress. Every one of the, you know, people always look to the president and say, well, why are you not doing this? The president can only do so much. Congress has to move legislation. Congress has to do their job. Are we passing acts like the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act, which neither ensures patient access nor provides any benefit to law enforcement during their investigation and actually impedes their ability to do investigations, is not what we expect from Congress. A law like that was written to specifically benefit people corporations that were in violation of the act and regulations. And it's now made it more difficult for the Drug Enforcement Administration to go after them. Now, Mr. Trump didn't sign that bill and he didn't write that bill. That was written by the Congress that's sitting today, for the most part, and it was addressed by, the, and it was signed by the previous president. So you've got to ask yourself, in the midst of an opioid epidemic, in the midst of a, a crisis where people are dying in droves, and now we have heroin, why would you restrict the only agency that's a full-time drug enforcement agency from going after major corporations? That's a question you've got to ask the United States Congress, because if you can get an answer out of them, you're a better person than I, because I'm scratching my head here trying to figure out why it's the case. Congress does not understand what is happening. They need to get back into their communities and talk to some parents that have lost kids. But if there's a problem today, it's not the guy in the White House. He just got there. 
It's the people that have an opportunity to pass legislation that will actually at least stop or, or suppress some of the problem. And that Cures Act and all these other acts are great for treatment, but they do nothing to help the problem. It's good for treatment, but we need better enforcement. We don't need or restricted enforcement. It's not the Trump problem. It's a congressional problem. You've also been critical of the potential candidates for Mr. Trump's drug czar position. So who would be your ideal candidate for that position? My ideal candidate for the drug czar position is somebody who has both enforcement uh, and background in enforcement, a background in health care and a background in public policy, because that's what the drug czar is. He has to straddle a line between law enforcement, public policy, and health care. Gil Kurlikowski was a law enforcement officer uh, that had to learn health care. Michael Botticelli was a person in treatment who knew treatment very well and knew health care very well, but he had to learn law enforcement in public policy. Same thing with Mr. Karolikowski. You know, we need somebody that's not a politician, somebody who is, who's strong in both the law enforcement arena and also in the healthcare arena. And there are people out there that have those qualities. There's a lot of people out there that have those qualities. You just gotta find them. But if we continue to go to the well and take the same people over and over again because they're a friend of a friend, you're never gonna find the right person. Uh, and, and the drug czar position is important. The DEA administrator position is important. The FBI director position is important. And, and we've got to stop looking within this little bubble that we have of political people that need jobs. And we have to start looking outside the bubble, the people who actually could help the country. Well, let's end with a hypothetical. Let's say you were the next DEA administrator. What would your primary initiatives be in moving forward with the agency? My, my primary initiative would be to start with the prescription drug problem, make sure we have enough manpower to go after the people who, not the users, but the people who are selling large quantities, the professionals that are, that are uh, distributing outside the scope of legitimate medical practice, uh, and making sure that those people are appropriately addressed. Less than one-tenth of one percent of the medical practitioners are actually bad and doing illegal things, but those are the people we have to concentrate on. The corporations that are not following the law, we have to concentrate on them too. Uh, we have to we have to address the heroin problem, the fentanyl problem. All of this fentanyl, acetyl fentanyl, and the other analogs of fentanyl are not coming into the country, uh, are not being produced here. They're coming into the country and being produced in foreign countries that have capabilities for manufacturing. So we have to work with those foreign countries, and we have to ensure that our our, our overseas divisions and our divisions that handle high-profile command and control cases are concentrating on those type of cases. And then we have to be out there, just like we did in the 90s and the 80s, getting into schools, teaching kids, and, and 
teaching parents about how this drug problem has evolved and how we could prevent it. We can't do anything about treatment, but we could handle the enforcement and the demand reduction level, and that's where we should be. That's what we should be looking at. Uh, the days of taking care of companies because of friends of friends are over. We don't have that luxury anymore. Too many people are dying. We need to get back to where we were in the 80s and 90s and do enforcement, pure and simple enforcement, and people will go to jail. And I never, ever, ever apologize for putting somebody in jail because if I put them in jail, they deserve to go to jail. And this idea that you know, people are, are distributing drugs and they shouldn't be in jail, we should give them another opportunity is just crazy. Uh, I would concentrate on enforcement, get back to where we were, because where we were is, was a good place. That's what I would do. So in conclusion, what didn't I ask you that you really wanted to be asked and what's your answer to the question? Hmm. I don't know. You pretty well covered it. I, you know, I, I guess I thought you would ask me about all of the, uh, uh, the allegations that were made about me in the press over the years and, uh, you know, all the allegations that I couldn't work with industry or I was being draconian in my methods or uh, uh, DEA does not want to work with distributors, manufacturers, and chain drug stores. I thought you would get more into that, but that's all right. I mean, we don't have to talk about that. Well, here's your opportunity to clear the air. Sure. I think that the Drug Enforcement Administration would never go after investigate and and take action against companies that were not violating the Controlled Substances Act or its implementing regulations. Uh, the idea that you know companies continue to use their uh, their money and influence to go into Congress and and change laws or complain about the federal agencies that are trying to protect the public is an outrage. You know, we, we don't ask you to do anything out of the ordinary. We ask you to provide and maintain effective controls against diversion so you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. Yet, rather than implement strategies within your companies that will help us stop the unabated flow of controlled substances into the illicit marketplace. You chose to go out and lobby Congress and say how horrible DEA's tactics were. And that's just a shame because to be a good corporate citizen means that you're going to have to do your part and your part would be changing your methods of operation to ensure that those drugs are not diverted. I, I think that if you would concentrate more on that and less on lobbying to get laws changed, you might actually be part of the solution, but you choose not to. So that's all I got to say. <laughs> well, with that, 
Mr. Anasizi, thank you for being part of the Pharmacy Podcast and addressing all of my crazy questions around controlled substances, um, the DEA, and kind of all the issues that are happening right now um, in our country. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Dr. Albert. I appreciate it. We thank you for listening to this final part of our mini-series conversation with Mr. Joseph T. Ranazizi, formerly of DEA. We're grateful to him that he was kind enough to sit down and have a multi-part series with us about a myriad of conversation and topics around pharmacy law, controlled substances, illicit substances, and the abuse crisis that we're having in this country right now coupled with his own career development, which started the conversation several episodes ago. So of the four parts that he was kind enough in many episodes to share with us, we would welcome your feedback. If you found any of this helpful, please go over to iTunes and leave us a rating. We always welcome that. In addition, feel free to reach out to us at Twitter, at Pharmacy Podcast, as well as my own personal Twitter handle, Aaron L. Albert. Thank you so much again for listening to this series. We hope you found it useful. I found it enlightening, and it was lovely to have Mr. Ranazizi with us. Until next time, take care. <laughs>